Good morning. Well, believe it or not, we are just two days away from 2019. And the start of a new year is a natural time to reflect on our lives. It's a natural time to ask ourselves, am I making the most of this gift of life that I've been given? And if not, what changes should I make in this new year to help me start doing that? And I think this is a healthy thing to do. You know, even if most of our resolutions don't make it to February, uh, the practice of reflecting on our lives and living intentionally is a wise thing to do. It's, it's wise for us to reflect on our lives as individuals, and it's also wise for us to reflect on our corporate life as a church. It's good for us to ask questions like, how are we really doing as a church? Are we being faithful to the mission that God's called us to? Are we stewarding our resources well? Do we as a church know why we're even here? Are we doing things that matter? And after some reflection, uh, there's at least one change that Keith and I would like to initiate going into this new year. And it might seem like a really minor thing, but we're hoping that God uses it to help inspire and focus us as a church. So here's what it is. We want to start our new year with a new vision slogan. For quite a few years now, our church has had a vision slogan of more people, more like Jesus. Those words appear in our church bylaws. They go at the top of every weekly email we send. They're usually written at the top of our bulletins. And this slogan has been used since before I came here. And the purpose of the slogan has always been to remind us of what we're all about as a church. Now, if you're like me, you bristle a little bit at that word slogan because it's a word that's used in advertising. So it feels a little inappropriate to be using it in a church context. But I'm using it for lack of a better word because more people more like Jesus actually isn't our mission statement. Did you know that? Our... Our church's actual mission, if you're not aware of it, is this uh, fourfold mission, and it's based on the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. And it's loving God, loving neighbor, sharing Christ, building believers. Loving God, loving neighbor, sharing Christ, building believers. Now, more people more like Jesus has been, for quite a few years now, a slogan that's meant to encapsulate what our vision as a church is. Is. In other words, as we work to fulfill this mission of loving God, loving neighbor, sharing Christ, and building believers, this is what we've hoped to see. More people becoming more like Jesus. Now, I remember when I first heard the vision slogan of St. Paul's, I thought, I like that. It's easy to remember, and it is what we're supposed to be doing. Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, and Making disciples is the process of helping people to become more like Jesus. And of course, we want to see a growing number of people becoming more like Jesus. We're, we're not just supposed to be internally focused on ourselves, but also on bringing more people into this life of becoming more like Jesus. So from the start, I liked the vision slogan. And honestly, I still like more people more like Jesus. So even though our vision slogan is changing, please don't take that as a sign that we don't actually want to see more people becoming more like Jesus. Of course we do. We're always going to want to see that. 
But if there's one concern I have about more people more like Jesus, it's that it can give the impression that we as a church place too much emphasis on numbers. More people, more people, more, more. See, built into the vision slogan itself is this idea that our church should constantly be growing in size, constantly be getting bigger. And because of that, if we're not constantly getting bigger, it can lead us to think that we're failing. Now, again, okay, let me reiterate. Of course, we want to see more people becoming more like Jesus at our church. I want that very much. I hope every one of us wants that. I hope every one of us is praying for that. But it's important for us to recognize that being like Jesus doesn't always lead to constant church growth. At one point in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, Jesus is being followed by a really large crowd. It's shortly after he fed 5,000 people by miraculously multiplying food. So lots of people are now following him around. And Jesus begins teaching the crowd and he says some things that are hard for them to hear. And we're told that many in the crowd, if not most, turn away because they don't like what Jesus is saying. So in this moment, in John chapter 6, Jesus is being Jesus, but that's not attractive to everyone. Because being like Jesus doesn't automatically equal growth. Now don't get me wrong, if we're really like Jesus, there are going to be people who are drawn to that. And if we're, really, if we're really being like Jesus, we're going to care about the people who don't know God, and we're going to long for them to come to know him. And if we're really like Jesus, we're not going to be just inward-focused. We're always going to be looking outward. If, if we're really like Jesus, we're going to care about people outside our fellowship, and we're, we're going to want to invite them into it. But we can't gauge our success as a church by whether our numbers are constantly growing. That's clearly not the way that Jesus gauged his success. And my concern is that if our vision slogan emphasizes more people, more, 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 we'll assume that being more like Jesus will automatically lead to more people. And even though we should be praying for that and hoping for that and working for that, we shouldn't assume that if our church isn't constantly growing in numbers, we're doing something wrong. We might be, but we might not. And so going into this, this year, 2019, I want us to embrace a new vision slogan, one that inspires us to be more like Jesus, but doesn't imply that if we are, the church is constantly going to be uh, increasing in attendance. And so this is it. Ready? It's just three words. Truth, grace, life. Truth, grace, life. And for the rest of this morning, I'd like to explain why that is our new chosen vision slogan. The main inspiration for this comes from the first chapter of John's gospel. It says, starting in verse 14, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in case this is not clear, uh, this is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the Word, the Word made flesh. And we're told here that Jesus came full of grace and truth. So if we are really becoming more like Jesus, then we too should be filled with grace and truth, right? Both as individuals and as a church. Uh, 
So that's where the first two words in our new vision slogan come from. Now, this is going to be a two-part message. We're going to talk about truth this week and grace and life next week. And what I want to spend the rest of this morning doing is identifying what it means to be filled with truth, like Jesus. If we as a community are filled with truth, that will mean at least six things. So if you're taking notes, this is number one. To be filled with truth is, number one, to be able to see things as they actually are. This means being able to see through any of the lies that have become commonplace in our culture. And every culture has their lies. For example, a common one in ours is you need to buy more things in order to be happy. We have a very consumeristic culture in America, and that is the lie that fuels our consumerism. It's the lie that is the foundation of all advertising. But when we're filled with truth, like Jesus, we're able to, to discern the lies that our culture is telling us and to keep from being suckered by them. Just like Jesus was able to see through the self-centered spirituality of the Pharisees. To be filled with the truth, number two, is to be able to tell it like it is. And that's whether the way it is is popular or not. Jesus was exceptionally good at this. He spoke the truth even if it was hard to hear and even if it meant losing his crowd of adoring followers, uh, as we saw in John 6. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be tactful in the way that we tell it like it is, but if we're filled with the truth, we should be able to speak the truth. For people like you and me, being filled with the truth also means, number three, it means being able to admit when we're not sure about something. That's really important to recognize that. Being filled with the truth doesn't just mean knowing things. It also means knowing when we don't know something and not being afraid to admit that. Number four, being filled with the truth also means being able to be honest about our own failures and shortcomings. Most of us have this innate desire to see ourselves as basically good people, right? Smart, moral, reasonable. This is why when we're students, if we do poorly in a class, we always try to blame the teacher, right? Because our psyches are fragile and we have trouble accepting the idea that we might be the ones at fault for a bad grade. But if we do well in a class, who gets the credit? It's not the teacher, right? We give ourselves the credit. We think, I worked hard. I did a good job. This is my doing. And this tendency to blame someone else when things go wrong and to take credit when things go right, that's a sign of this innate desire that we have to think well of ourselves and to justify that view. This same impulse to think highly of ourselves, it also leads us to assume that if anyone is upset with us, they're in the wrong, not us. And yes, sometimes that may be true, but other times uh, we really are at least partly to blame for our, our relationship problems but we can't admit it because we're desperate to preserve this false image of ourselves. So we come up with all kinds of elaborate justifications for our actions, and 
usually these justifications really don't fool anyone but ourselves. But to be filled with the truth is to actively refuse to live that way. It's to choose to own up to our mistakes. It's to choose to apologize for our wrongs. It's to choose to be honest with others and perhaps most importantly with ourselves about who we really are. Okay, that's number four. Number five, and this is one I, I want to spend some time on. Being filled with the truth means having a commitment to facts rather than just feelings. Having a commitment to facts rather than just feelings. Unfortunately, the commitment to facts is something that's lacking in our culture today. This year, a social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt released a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And in it, he says that our culture has taught a generation of people three terrible ideas. And these are three terrible ideas that contradict both basic psychological principles about well-being and ancient wisdom from almost every major culture. And the first, no, sorry, I, I think it's the second. Um, the second of these uh, three terrible ideas is this. Always trust your feelings. Always trust your feelings. Now, I haven't read the book myself, just a summary of it, so I'm not sure what examples Jonathan Haidt uh, points to as proof that this idea is being pushed in our culture, but I think he's right. My generation grew up on movies that often had a, an essential message that was just follow your heart and don't listen to what anyone else says. Follow your heart. Which, when you think about it, it's, that's not really good advice. Maybe in a few occasions, that's, that's good, but it's got to be balanced by more than just follow your heart, right? Feelings have an important role to play in our lives. God made us with feelings. We shouldn't just ignore them. Our feelings contribute to our intuitions, which sometimes can, can really uh, lead us in the right direction. But feelings can also lead us astray. And they, they cannot function as the sole criteria for determining what is true. Any of us who have ever struggled with an anxiety disorder know this. Because an anxiety disorder is what happens when our feelings are telling us that we're in danger even though we're not, right? If you're having a panic attack, the worst advice you can receive is, just listen to your heart. Right, because your heart is telling you that you're gonna die. What, what you need to do in that situation is to stop listening to your heart and instead listen to reason. And that's what therapy usually helps a person learn to do, is to stop focusing so much on feelings and to focus on facts. For example, I may feel afraid to get on this airplane, but the facts are that I am statistically safer on this plane than I was in the car on the way to the airport. So I should relax 
And if I had a big problem with getting on a plane, a, a therapist would, would remind me of the facts and tell me to dwell on the facts rather than my feelings. And what Jonathan Haidt argues in this book is that one of the reasons anxiety disorders are so on the rise in our culture right now is because a whole generation of people have been taught, I should always trust my feelings. I should always trust my feelings. And just as feelings can lead us astray when it comes to anxiety disorders, they can lead us astray when it comes to other areas too. Our feelings can lead us astray about what's right and wrong, about what moral truth. Our feelings can lead us astray about who we really are, about what our identity is. Our feelings can lead us astray about who God is and what the truth is about spiritual things. Our feelings can lead us astray about what our gifts and abilities actually are. If you've ever watched any of those talent shows like American Idol, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> There's always a few people auditioning who are deeply convinced that they're talented, but they're literally tone deaf, right? You watch them and you think, how could they ever think that they can sing? Well, why is that? It's because they're being led completely by their feelings, not by objective reality. Another sign that we as a culture have more of a commitment to feelings than to facts is the state of our politics right now. I really think one of the reasons that we're so divided is because we can't agree on what things are facts and what things are, are not. And one of the reasons that we can't agree is because we can't agree on which sources of information are reliable. And one of the main reasons we can't agree is because so many of us allow our feelings to determine what we believe and what we think is trustworthy, not a careful, honest assessment of the data. You know, we feel that one political party is good and the other is bad. And if so, so <clears throat> if any information comes along slandering someone from the opposing political party, we immediately assume it's true. And then we, we hit the share button and we spread that slander all, all over social media. Even if what's being said has no basis in fact, we feel that it's true. So we believe it and spread it. And even when we're confronted with facts that disprove what we feel is true, some of us still dig our heels in and continue to cling to those false beliefs. Here's an example. A year or two ago, I saw a video being shared on social media, and it was of some men climbing up a Christmas tree in a mall. And these men looked like they were of Arab descent. And if you watch the video, there was a lot of noise and commotion and shouting. And around the tree, there were a lot of people, including women who were wearing hijabs, uh, you know, the uh, head coverings that Muslim women wear. And around the video, someone had placed text that said something like, Muslims, they'll assimilate, right? Yeah, right. And the implication was that this is a video of Muslim people in America 
angrily tearing down a Christmas tree, right? A, a symbol of Christianity. Now, I watched that video and I thought, hmm, it's interesting. I wonder if that's actually what's going on here. So I did a little research and I found out that the video isn't a bunch of Muslims hating on Christmas. The video wasn't even from a mall in America. It's from a mall in Cairo, in Egypt. And in this mall in Cairo, there's this tradition where around Christmas time, people are encouraged to participate in a game where they climb a tree and grab gifts at the top. So the video doesn't depict an attack on Christmas at all. It actually is showing a Christmas celebration. And the people who are climbing the tree probably aren't Muslims, they're Egyptian Christians. But someone found that video and then they took it out of context and wrote a headline that said, Muslims see a Christmas tree being set up at a mall, then start attacking it. And it spread like wildfire. Why? Because many of us have more of a commitment to feelings than to facts. Rather than investigating whether something is true, we just, we feel it. And, and the result is that we slander people, we demonize others, we spread false rumors, and we have to recognize that is evil. It's wrong. It doesn't matter whether we disagree with Republicans or Democrats or Muslims or atheists. We shouldn't just assume that every horrible piece of information that we come across about those people is true. Right? When we assume that every bad rumor is true, and worse, when we spread them, we're participating in evil. We're causing unnecessary division. We're gossiping and slandering, and we're letting feelings guide us, not facts. And we are not being full of truth. We're not being like Jesus. Now, to be clear, okay, just to be clear, I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate reasons to be concerned about the beliefs of Republicans or Democrats or Muslims or atheists. There are beliefs that all four of those categories hold that concern me personally very much. But my concerns don't give me a right to believe every terrible rumor that's spread about them. When I'm confronted with ugly rumors about anyone, I have to choose to care more about the facts than what I feel. Jesus actually challenged us to care more about the facts than our feelings, especially when it comes to other people groups people outside of our usual uh, tribe of people. One great example of this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You're probably familiar with the story, but just in case you're not or you need a refresher, I'll read it. This is from Luke 10, starting in verse 30. Luke 10, starting in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. 
so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, if we don't know anything about the context that Jesus was living in, we can assume that this is just a story about how you should be nice to people in need. And that is part of what this story is about, but it's so much more than that. Because what Jesus does in this story is he makes a Samaritan the good guy, and he makes a priest and a Levite the bad guy. And in that culture, That was backwards. The Jews thought of priests and Levites as holy, spiritual, law-abiding people, good people. And they thought of Samaritans as unclean, wayward people. Notice that the teacher of the law who answers Jesus and says, the one who had mercy on him, he can't even bring himself to say that the Samaritan is the one that did the right thing. He doesn't use the, the word Samaritan. He just says, well, the one who had mercy on him, he's the one who was a neighbor. Um, that's because he doesn't even want to say the word. And so what Jesus is doing through this story is he's saying, you shouldn't judge people just by what category they belong to. Your feelings might tell you that Samaritans, bad people, but you can't just listen to your feelings. You have to realize that if a Samaritan actually cares for a vulnerable person, but a priest ignores him, the Samaritan is the hero in that story, not the priest. You have to be open to the possibility that the people who are the most merciful and compassionate, they might be from groups that you don't like. Republicans, Democrats, Muslims, if you want Jesus' story to impact you the way it would have impacted the original hearers, just substitute the word Samaritan for any group of people you don't like. Then think about what Jesus is trying to say to you. He's saying, those people you feel are evil, don't just trust your feelings. Care more about the facts and be open to the possibility that they might have more mercy and compassion than you ever would have thought. Okay, finally, one more thing that means to be filled with truth is this. This is number six. To be filled with truth is to look to Jesus' teaching and example as our supreme authority. When Jesus came full of truth, he said these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's John 14, 6. 
Notice, he says, I am the truth. That's such a bold statement, right? Not just I tell the truth or I know the truth, but I am the truth. What Jesus is saying is that if we want to know the truth, truth about God, truth about life, truth about the things that really matter, the way that things really are, if we want to know that, we have to know him. We have to seek him. We have to pay attention to Jesus' words and not just know them or memorize them, but put them into practice. And if we as a community ever take our focus off of Jesus, we can't be filled with truth anymore. Jesus has to be at the center because to know Jesus is to know truth. So my hope and prayer is that our church can embody fullness of truth in all six of these ways. And you know, even though numbers aren't supposed to be our, fi- our first priority, I do think that a community that is full of truth, is, it's going to be attractive to a lot of people. Because in this world where feelings are constantly overriding facts and people are anxious from putting so much emphasis on their feelings and where there's so much misinformation and confusion, a community where truth is valued and sought is going to, it's going to feel to some people like a refreshing oasis. And I pray that we can be that oasis. But a community that's full of truth can also be scary because sometimes truth hurts. Sometimes we've developed an elaborate system of defense mechanisms so that we don't have to confront the truth about ourselves and about our world. We want to hide from it. And that's why we need something more than just truth. We also need that other thing that Jesus was full of. We need grace. But that's for next week.